Hey, business producer Cam here. The economy is getting back underway, and with it, the world of pro sports. Stay ahead of the curve with the unparalleled tools of two world-class news desks, covering developments across finance, economics, technology, and sports. Subscribe to Bloomberg.com, and if you're not already an athletic subscriber, for a limited time, receive a complimentary subscription to The Athletic. Go to Bloomberg.com forward slash subscribe again. Bloomberg.com forward slash subscribe to sign up today. Farm on the field, people will come. It doesn't happen. You have to look at how you're doing business. Welcome to White Sox Business, the only podcast about Chicago's Southside baseball team that's hosted by me, John Greenberg, and more importantly, James Fegan. Subscribe to White Sox Business on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, check out James and my work on The Athletic as well. James, you had a front row seat, well, a front row in the, the upper deck of right field of the White Sox Stadium, for the Cardinals' triumphant return to baseball. As To paraphrase Frank Costanza from Seinfeld, they rose like a phoenix out of St. Louis. They're back. They hadn't played in two weeks. And they swept a doubleheader from the White Sox on Saturday. But the Sox came back and uh, struck the revenge on Sunday. What the heck was going on this weekend on the South Side, James? Well, I guess it's Saturday. Everyone was kind of asking which one of these teams was actually on a 17-day layoff. Because uh, <laughs> the White Sox kind of made... Well, I guess they had six hits all day. Um, they kind of in the second game they kind of made some defensive sloppiness. Well, really both games. They kind of, um, you know, they're not the twenty-seven Yankees as much as they might have been billed up to be uh, in the first week uh, by some outlets. Um, they they kind of can't really afford to play sloppy or kind of have uh, you know their top starter you know find his command for an entire inning. Um, they're, they're really not a team that can afford bad breaks or, or, or extra outs or anything like that. And they kind of had that in surplus. But, um, if people are wondering when, why, where the, uh, Cardinals layoff would be that showed up Sunday where they had like, I guess, I th- want to say they had three or four players making their major league debuts. And the guy they had out there, Roll Ryel Ramirez, who had not pitched in a major league game before and just was left out to absolutely die. Um, and give up four straight home runs. Um, that that was their layoff showing up. They just not did not have the pitching depth in place to really kind of counter some guy getting uh, spit roasted at a historic degree um, because they just needed innings of any kind. And I guess as a result, the the Cardinals layoff just spared the White Sox from a sweep. But you know the way Dallas Keuchel's kind of been rolling all season, uh, maybe Sunday was just their day, no matter what. I'm not going to say Raul Ramirez or whatever his name is is a uh, household name, but you actually misspelled his first name in your story, which I was Rael. It's it's R O E L. Huh. <laughs> That's how I, I can hear you googling it now to see if I'm correct. <laughs> well, I mean, it was misprinted somewhere. <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, it's. I thought it, the layoff would come back in the second game of the doubleheader. You know, like yeah, they come out first, and then you're like, all right, well, the White Sox will win. They're not going to lose both these games. 
And, you know, but then obviously the White Sox were, that was a bullpen game, wherever you, however you call it. So, right. They, but so are the Sox because they've actually been pitching. They've actually, you know, not playing this tortured season um, isn't much better than playing the tortured season where you have uh, a bunch of your starters go down and you wind up throwing a bullpen game yourself in the second game uh, for entirely independent reasons. So, the I mean, though, the bullpen game really didn't hurt them. as The reason they lost the second game is because their two setup men, Evan Marshall and Jimmy Cordero, both got bloodied. And that right. would have probably happened anyway if that was going to happen because those guys are going to pitch because they're your... They're who you trust, even though you didn't know their names at the start of last year. Um, they're who you would trust in that inning, uh, no matter what. So um, I don't I think that's particularly encouraging, um, but that's the state of things. Aaron Bummer um, posted something optimistic on Instagram the other day, so you know, hopefully he's not <laughs> lost for the season. Yeah, it's always a good sign. Um, but then Sunday, the, the White Sox did kind of what people expect from the White Sox to do, and that's you know an offensive show of fireworks bolstered by Dallas Keuchel when you know back to back to back to back what was it like seeing that in person I mean it's very ridiculous but I mean by by, by the second or third one uh you're kind of looking up uh I, I think I turned to Vinny and said like so so what did Rael Ramirez do to or Royal Ramirez what did Mr. Ramirez do to Mike Schilt? Because like this is this is comical. Like he, why is he being out there? Like he started the inning throwing ninety four. He didn't like like great shakes or anything. But it was like okay, they call this guy up. He has some stuff. And by the time he's getting having Eloy Jimenez, um, you know, hit a home run through his legs to the left field bullpen. Um, it, he was like sitting ninety. He just seemed kind of worn out and completely out of like the game and it, it was basically an audition and he he flunked it and then they kept pitching him for another two batters it was very curious um and it was funny because up until that point uh we were getting the type of tweets of uh the white Sox reporters are not doing their job if they don't ask rick renneria what the call was when danny mendick got thrown out stealing second base why was he throwing a hit and run or was he stealing on his own this is the type of thing he needs to be held account for and was this then, what Ozzy um, was? Was this what Ozzy was tweeting you guys? I don't know, unless he has burner accounts uh, <laughs> with uh, white males from the south suburbs' faces on them. But <laughs> yeah, it was it was all about like, did the White Sox run themselves out of the inning? Was this small ball coming back to bite them? Like why? And everything about holding the manager to account. And then the White Sox lineup finally made the White Sox managing job look like what it should look like, which is just sit back and watch the guys hit home runs or, or wait for them to hit home runs. What their offense is built around, why they're not, you know, hit and running and bunting as much as they usually did in the past three years when the, when the offense was terrible. Um, this, this is what it was supposed to be. So I, 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 I can't say that Yoan Mankata is back now or Yasmani Grandal is back now, especially with what he kind of identified post game, uh, because they, uh, you know, knocked around this guy who just might not be a major leaguer, but uh, you know, part of part of making the playoffs in baseball is just beating who you should, and uh, they should right. have on Sunday. Right. We'll get into some of those reasons, uh, you know, kind of for concern and and maybe optimism. But first, you mentioned, you know, obviously the tweets you're getting from Sox fans, and it's also like I watched the post game show after the doubleheader with with Chuck Garfine. You know, he's usually fairly optimistic about the team. And Ozzie Guillen, who, you know, it depends on on Ozzie's mood. It's a very curious, 
thing to have a popular World Series manager who still wants to manage. Uh, critiquing the current manager on the team-owned station, I don't think that happens very often. And it's an interesting dynamic. And But they were both really – they were coming pretty hard at the team after that doubleheader. Like a very necessary – you know, critiques from both of those guys uh, on the team itself is, do you feel like there's more, like we expected Ricky to be, you know, when we thought this was going to be a normal season, this is, this was expected to be kind of a prove it year for Rick Renteria, who's never really had a competitive team managing the Cubs and the White Sox. He's been in charge of rebuilding projects and thus, you know, people were annoyed with him about his, his strategies, but they were never that like meaningful. This was supposed to be kind of the meaningful you know, season. And then, you know, that's muted a little bit by, by real world context, but you feel like heat is starting to come for Ricky now. In terms of like from the outside, but I think from the inside, they realize like the season's more about, uh, you know, don't have any of the players, um, uh, not to be glib about it, but keep everyone alive. Like, uh, it's everyone healthy, navigate through a crisis. It's, uh, it's just really hard to say, this is about, Right. This is we're gonna fire him for um, you know bad hit and runs when it's uh, given all of that's all the extra stuff that's on his plate um, this season com- compared to everything else and how you know the how everything is so weird and how much he's dealing with not getting the production from veterans that maybe he'd expect and maybe there's understandable reasons why those veterans are producing given the, all the extenuating circumstances going on. I just don't think. I mean, beyond just all the very much all the alert lights on the you know dashboard are flashing that there's financial issues that are probably going to override really any like necessity as far as like what they need to do. Um, I just don't see the like Ricky catching a bunch of heat from the front office uh, about very specific minutia uh, of getting through this season. So what do you I mean, you've always been pretty, I'd say, you know, clear eyed if that's a. That's a term. I think it's a term about Ricky in general. What are you seeing about like, why should he take heat right now? Like right now, right now. And why shouldn't he, you know, are there, are there specifics? He should take heat because he's the guy in charge. And so when the team plays like crap, that's how accountability works. He wears it, whether or not I can like, you know, conclusively find on video that, uh, you know, Ricky whacked the offense over the head with a candlestick in the drawing room you know, it, it's still that's how that's how the blame works. If the team is continually making defensive mistakes, uh, if they're you know not coming through with runners on or showing bad approaches uh, as they seem to consistently do, like yeah, maybe there's just no changing Jose Abreu to not swing at three zero changeup as shins. But if 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 the if the team is not executing things they need to do, that, that's how the blame is going to go. Uh, that's the job. But uh, I would I would say that he's just. For one, I I don't think you can blame him necessarily. Like the, the big thing why this offense is not going where it needs to be going is that Grandal, Edwin Carnacion, and Abreu are all just were not really hitting very much uh, coming into the season. Right. That's guys you were all those are back of the baseball card uh, type of guys where you kind of depend on their production just being there. Um, I, I don't necessarily think the Nomar Mazara bet not coming through so far. I don't think that's necessarily on Ricky. Uh, 
even if like Frank Menachino, as optimistic as he was spring training, doesn't come through with like Nomar Mazar becomes an all-star, that's ultimately a bet the front office took. Not really like, why, did, why didn't you do this kind of improbable thing that the Texas Rangers gave up on after 10 years of having this guy in their organization, essentially. Um, that I don't, I don't see as a coaching staff failure, but I, it, it's, it's just, there's so many circumstances that are beyond him that it, it's hard to say this one right. year is the fair shake uh, in a 60 game campaign. Like if they've played 22 games, um, it, it, it's very easy to see a narrative where they kind of turn around um, or, or become like an, a, Oh, 85 and 90 win team by the end of the year in a normal season and we think like laugh back I like remember how crappy they looked in april like that just it's just there's nothing that's happened so far it's just beyond the pale of a normal team struggles especially when you factor in the part where the world is kind of upside down right you know it's funny about this i'm thinking you know i, I agree with you about judging managers this year and like what's you know what's fair and what's not fair and i'm usually on the side of you know, this is this is a business, and it's your big boys, and this is a big market, and you know, you gotta, you're, you're, you know, it's not about fair, it's not about someone's job, it's about you know accomplishing what you're supposed to accomplish, which is winning games. So I don't think a lot of managers are gonna get fired this season. But <laughs> how many hitting coaches do you think still get fired when teams struggle? Because that's my favorite thing in baseball is like when a team struggles, you just fire the hitting coach. And the White Sox have never been shy about firing hitting coaches. I mean. They're not like eager, uh, you know. Todd <laughs> Stevenson, I think, was one of the longest tenured hitting coaches by the time he finally got fired. Like it was yeah. like six or seven years. And, I mean, he got carried over from the Ventura administration. That's that's rare enough right. as it owned for a hitting coach. All right, I'm being unfair. I'm just thinking back to all the the Greg Walker criticism back in the day. Right, but Greg Walker worked for like 15 like years. Or something. <laughs> right, right. Okay, I'm unfair. That was an unfair comment by me. But in general, well, I, I think hitting coaches get fired a lot in baseball. I think the White Sox would when they when you criticize them for saying you guys will never fire anybody ever. They would point to the fact like, well, look, we fired the hitting coach or look, we did this. But in, right. in terms of the scale, of the rest of the league, they really are pretty slow to kind of remove people. And, and you know, the way it's been turned to me is that you know the White Sox probably don't really, or a Jerry Reinsdorf organization doesn't fire guys just because like, hey, we need a new voice, right. even if that's what they say in the public statement. You need an affirmative reason why this guy is not doing the job, and we need to replace him, and we can find someone to do better than him. Like it, it's a very, it's a thing you, it's a case you have to make. Uh, it's, right, it's not right. just like, uh, we want to bring our own guy or, uh, right. we're in the launch angle now. So we're going to bring some guy like, right. It, I'm thinking more of the Cubs have been, the Cubs have been a lot worse about that, about making quick changes. I mean, they gave Chili Davis a year, you know, so that was bad. I mean, what do you, do you think the White Sox fire coop if things go bad? Pause for no, laughter. I, I don't think there would ever be a situation. <laughs> I, I think it would be. Coop's got to resign. I, He's like John Paxson. Yeah. I don't think it would be a, um, like. Coop is thrown out on his behind situation ever. I think it might be like, you know, uh, Coop's retiring. I mean, I don't think Coop is going to like leave the White Sox and go work for the Mets or something like that. Like, I, I think this is probably like his last job in baseball. It's it's more about like, oh, we're uh, moving up someone like Tiford or Zaleski or someone who's had a lot of minor league uh, success to work along Coop or, you know, the Herm situation where Coop is like, you know, still an advisor who, you know, comes to spring training, watches a lot of pitchers, gives his, you know, takes on things, but maybe he's not going to travel on every road trip now because of all, you know, the medical issues and whatnot he's had. Like, I, I just right. don't think there's going to be like a bad ending for him. Uh, I, I, th I think they appreciate him too much. And also he's just been there too long. He, it, he'll definitely like how it goes. 
when he's done, he definitely gets a retirement job. You know, pitching coach emeritus. Was there ever been a pitching coach emeritus in Major League Baseball? But like, it'd be like a similar thing to like what whatever Dave Duncan is doing right now, where, where he watches video and like gives his right. take and has a voice in the room every now and then. Like, and as, as much as you could be like, the pitching staff has stunk the last couple of years, and or or maybe it's gone past his time. Like, he's objectively had a great run. Like most oh, yeah. most pitching coaches don't like kind of have a head up on the league. Uh, for any stretch Forever. of time, let alone right. for like you know ten years, where Coop literally was like ahead of the curve. So, I, I, when he ever Listen, he does he's got step a world, down, he's got a World Series ring and an amazing pitching performance in that World Series. So, you know his legacy, as much as we like to joke about it, you know is is pretty good. It'd be fun to have a statue, a Coop statue. You think yeah, what, what what pose would it strike? Well, that's that's the great part. There's a lot of there's a lot of possibilities. Um, actually, Ben Hockman from the St. Louis Post Dispatch said the Sox need um, a Dr. Dre a Dr. Dre statue in the Sox hat from the Nothing But a G Thing video, which would be how I mean, like, would that be a tourist attraction or what if that was outside? It, it would be. It, it doesn't seem in, totally in line with the vibe that they actually put out as a franchise. It's more what's been applied to them. It'd be pretty sweet, though. Yeah. If, if they're looking to draw more people, you know, maybe put it outside the Chicago Sports Depot because that's where they sell the hats. Or put it inside to actually get people in. <laughs> right, exactly. Put it right by their cash register. <laughs> maybe behind the register. Yeah, there <laughs> so you they, go. They can get some purchase. Maybe Grandstand will do that. We should we should give that idea to Grandstand Sports. Also um, doesn't fully I- seem like Grandstand's vibe, but uh, okay. <laughs> I went in there uh, before one of the first games, or I think before one of the exhibitions. It's a great store. I like yeah. Grandstand. Um, okay, so let's talk about some reasons for concern with this team. They're 11 and 11 as we're talking. I mean, I, you know, what would be your number one reason for concern? Is it injuries or is it the boom and bust offense? Is it the fact that Yasmani Grandel can't watch video after every at bat? Uh, I mean, that's my greatest concern at the moment. Uh, I don't know. And that's what you wrote if, about. That's what James wrote about for just for if you haven't read this stu- site, uh, haven't read his stuff on Monday, go to it now. He wrote about Yasmani Grandel, Dallas Keuchel, and um, Yon Moncada. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't know if we're covering uh, regularly, if uh, I would have just driven Yasmani uh, nuts by now by talking to him too much, but uh, because I do that with all catchers, but. I've, I've liked him because like every time he's come on, he's been like very no bullshit in his answers. And so like I was trying to like edge into like, so are you thinking the offense is getting a little better? He's like, no, I've been terrible. <laughs> and you kind of <laughs> ask him why. And he goes on this grievance about not being able to watch video um, during games. And part of that is just like, well, I could adjust my swing. But like he mentioned what I thought was really interesting or what showed up in numbers right away was just saying like, he can't really get a feel for what the umpire's zone is. And like, normally if he takes like a close strike and, or a strike, he thought it was off the plate, he can go look and where it's being called and kind of get a feel for the zone. And as a result, like everything he's like, his strikeout looking is way up. His, uh, the percentage of strikes he takes that are looking are just way up. And so he's just kind of unnaturally getting in more bad counts and taking more called strike threes that a guy who obviously, is still walking 16% of the time and probably leading baseball or something close to it um, 
it just doesn't have this kind of elite feel for the zone that he kind of is dependent on because he's not Luis Robert. He's not just like super duper bat speed and, you know, the fastball could be halfway into the catcher's glove and he pokes it 440 feet to right field. Like, that's not him. He kind of has to guess right. And so taking away all these kind of tools that he used to really be very anticipatory, I don't want to say it's like doom for him because obviously you can always make adjustments, but it, it's it's kind of making him reorder himself on the fly. Now, the hope would be that it's a COVID-19 protocol um, because that's what it technically is at the moment. But obviously, it was made with the mind of trying to also um, keep the Astros and Red Sox. And, you know, given what Yasmani said at SoxFest, probably the Dodgers <laughs> a little bit from doing what they were doing. Uh, but it, it's also, I mean, Yasmani's not the only guy that complained about it. I think, uh, you know, I was talking to Nick Roke with the Rockies who said Charlie Blackman was really uh cranky about it so obviously it's not holding him back too much and uh, jd martinez has also talked to the red sox people about it so it's an issue but probably not as big as the issue of just all their uh pitchers uh, shoulders blowing up that's that's already like has them with a four-man rotation as is where they can't really afford any injuries and they're kind of weighing whether to bring danny dunning up this week which it sounds like they probably will and just um they're racing to get like ronaldo lopez and carlos Rodon back not that anyone was completely sold that they were saviors in the first po- point but you know you can't just run Matt Foster into the ground uh, as as much as the fan base <laughs> seems to be calling for it. <laughs> the Dane Dunning thing seems like that would be like right up your alley for a fun moment to cover this season. And, and you're right. If you were allowed access into the clubhouse, I mean, you would probably just like set up a desk at Dane Dunning's locker, I assume. Uh, you know, it'd be kind of the alternate site from uh, McCann and uh, Grandal, but sure. Uh, Dane's always been a very personal guy. It feels like I've been covering Dane Dunning for, uh, I don't know, I guess they traded for him right before I joined the beat. So it, it has been three years of Dane Dunning being <laughs> the near MLB ready prospect who hasn't been in the MLB. <laughs> but uh, I, I, I don't. I've, it's almost like my opinion of Dane Dunning's arsenal has probably flipped twice um since they acquired him since when he came up he was like the sinker baller guy and that seemed like a solid white Soxian profile and then the entire league went kind of high four seam fastball crazy and now if anything it's kind of switching around again where um players are realizing that you know if everybody is throwing four seamers and every hitter is ready for that now maybe somebody like dane dunning the way dallas keichel is kind of succeeding by living on the ground um Hey, maybe Amy Dane Dunning's a different look for guys and he'll be really successful. So I, I'm not really sold on the idea that somebody who is low 90s, who is coming off TJ, who's still kind of finding his stuff a little degree, who who's not expected to be an overwhelming starter, but more of a back end guy is going to come in and be like a sensation for the White Sox. But yeah, it'd be more interesting to cover Dane Dunning than, than bullpen days or have a you know, fans tweeting at me. So Matt Foster's really never started as a professional before. No, no, he hasn't. He's a 20th round reliever. Please be thankful for what you have out of him and not trying to push for him to be a game one playoff starter. It's it's Sox fans are in an interesting situation this year because they get a lot of crap for being, you know, overly negative as they should be for a team that's, you know, a team they follow that's made the playoffs five times since 1959. I think I'd probably be a little and has never made obviously the postseason in back to back years. I think, you know, they've got some reasons to be cranky, but this year they were kind of sold a bill of, not a bill of goods by everyone, but like, un- it was an unusual amount of hype. It hasn't been this much hype since one of those, you know, failed free agent frenzies that the Sox used to do 
where they would bring in, you know, Adam LaRoche or Adam Dunn and, and tell fans the Sox, the Sox have the lineup to win. So like, I understand if they're like antsy, even though like 11 and 11, if you just look at the record, if you told us before the season started, that's how they'd start. You'd say, yeah, that, that sounds about right. Right. But it's come through in kind of frustrating ways where, you know, they started really bad and then they won six games in a row. And it's like, Oh, this right. is the team we were promised. And then they right. went back up again. And, then, you know, the new free agent pitcher telling everybody to clean this shit up isn't necessarily like the as much as everyone was happy to hear him do it. It's not really like the big like, whoa, things are great um, right. type of <laughs> indicator. But it's not just like this year that they were sold to 2020 as a year. Like something that, you know, maybe the snarkier corners of Sox Twitter have been sharing is the fact that like, you know, outlets like, uh, you know, NBC Sports Chicago or even, I don't know, the White Sox themselves have been saying, like, you know, from three years ago, like, oh, man, just imagine in 2020 when they have Luis Robert and Eloy Jimenez and, you know, Mancada up all at the same time, pray for the league. Like, that's the, they've been being sold 2020 for a while now. It's it's not something that's just, uh, uh, you know, right. appeared One last year. night or because they signed guys this offseason and previously 2020 was just another rebuild year. They've been kind of been being told that there's this great future coming and now it's here and they probably don't want to hear the whole patience argument that much anymore. And given the investment in the team, they have reason to think they shouldn't. Um, and, and especially if like, you know, everybody's making the playoffs who's worth a damn that kind of that kind of, uh, you know, we would they would they would like to see that their team is worth a damn this year and make the playoff. I would have loved to have seen what the crowd would have been like at that. I mean, there wouldn't have been, a, it's, it's tough to like, you can't, there's no hypothetical because they wouldn't have been playing the Cardinals in a doubleheader if there's no pandemic and fans were allowed in. So it, it's kind of a silly hypothetical, but like, imagine the, imagine what a, a White Sox crowd would be like at a Saturday doubleheader in that situation. The White Sox dropping both games to a Cardinals team that hadn't played in two weeks. It would have been pretty fun. Yeah. Uh, I mean, as, as far as actual, like, fun to be in the i mean the the primary action you would see to indicate the mood of the dropping the double header would is probably still on twitter um, <laughs> yeah, i would say true. probably the more fun <laughs> reaction to be have a crowd for would be the four straight home runs but um you know that's just that's just not the way things are going to be you probably don't have uh you know ramirez left out there to die in a normal season either so it's true and i wrote about uh, the White Sox have been pretty stringent on access. It's really interesting because they're going kind of above what the city requirements are. And, and you and I learned that, you know, when they basically said, don't go to Milwaukee if you want to come back in two weeks um, to us early in the season. And then this weekend, they didn't let in the Cardinals beat writer, Derek Gold. They didn't let in Paul Sullivan, who's the Baseball Writers Association president. Um, along with uh, Jesse Rogers from ESPN and the Belleville News Democrats, um, Illinois-based uh, reporter Jeff Jones. So it was kind of interesting. I don't know. I doubt you guys talked about that much in the in the press box, right? I mean, not I really try not to for you. talk to people because because uh, <laughs> because of, of coronavirus, right? Because you're wearing a mask. <laughs> I thought it was interesting because I read about media issues. Um, and as I said to Sully, I'm like, this has to be the first time a BBWA president has been denied a credential to his home ball to any game. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, my biggest issue this season has been remembering because sometimes they they told us they'd issue daily credentials, and um, 
but sometimes they've issued like series long credentials. Right. And, uh, you know, I haven't been sure if I, you, I haven't had to worry about daily credentials for a while. And I've just, um, you know, had my BBDAW card, which is now a useless right. piece of plastic. And instead I have, um, probably eight or nine discarded daily credentials sitting on the floor of my Chevy Malibu, um, which, uh, my wife loves, by the way, that that's a huge, huge thing that she thinks is is very indica- indicative of me being an organized adult. But yeah, it, it's I don't, like I don't know. Um, everything I tried to write the most. I I can't write the stories that I would normally write anymore. There's just not the level of access. It takes understandably very long to set up a one on one. I don't want to be like too. Why didn't they set me up an exclusive uh, with you right. know, the AAA pitching coach? Um, when I I know it takes so much more organizing to even set up the zooms than they they normally had to do, and it's all because the they're separated in terms of like which PR people even have contact with players. It's like a lot of just just like Bob Bechtel having to wing things together uh, all the time on his own, where the other PR staffers don't have contact with the players. Right. Um, it's chaos. So I I I don't want to harp on it too much but like the stuff i wrote today was just trying to be as absolute like nitty-gritty analysis as possible and really just paying attention to the game and because you know the numbers indicated that fans uh care as much about covid as the people at sluggers in wrigleyville right now uh which is to say not at all and not yeah so so i'm just trying to be very analysis the game but realistically a lot of that i could have just done at home uh I, i don't know how much Really being at the park is really helping me. Yeah, I know I'm good. more locked in at the park because right. I'm there for work, so I should be working. But um, it's it's not like <laughs> it's not like seeing the game from the the right field corner is is, is right. giving me super informative takes. Right. That's and it's kind of I wrote about that a little bit today. Like people were saying, you know, why do you guys even need to be there? And I, usually, you know, you'd really argue about that. And this is kind of like an existential question for us. Like, what is the point when you can't go in the clubhouse? I think part of it is basically what you just said about being locked in. It's part of the rhythm of, you know, our jobs. And like, I think some people, I think for, I think in this situation, I think someone like Derek gold or is gold or gold. I can never remember that. Um, in any event, Derek, you know, as the beat writer for the dispatch, who's covered the team since 2004, I think him being at that game, you know, and watching them come back after this two weeks, that's that's legitimate. Like, there's news value to that rather than just watching on TV. I do think you're right. Sometimes for us being at the game, like, I was really, you know, as you know in our conversations, really gung-ho about us being as much games as possible home and, and the road. And then when it came down to the actual reality of it, you know, you could see that some of it was kind of a time suck more than something you gain. Yeah, I mean... um, I definitely saw Nomar Mazzara get a late break on the ball uh, on Saturday, and I put that <laughs> right. in there. And, you know, if uh, if I hadn't been there, I'd probably just like write a Rhea saying like, "I don't think anyone gets that," and I would just have to take him as word for it. But um, I, I I don't know if I, I assume I'm more kind of crazy attentive to the actual inside the line stuff because that's my approach more than even most writers are. I don't know if like I mean most people's like the average baseball analysis at the average outlet is more just about like really obvious base running mistakes and stuff like that. And not really like the insider stuff that really determines which pitch gets hit 450 feet or not. So, right. I don't know. Well, it's the old, there's an old Jerry Reinsdorf line when he, uh, when he moved the press box, 
you know, in my in my days, back in my day, James, um, the press box was right behind home plate. It was in the second level. It was awesome. And then they moved it to the upper right field side, which is terrible. And when Dave Van Dyke complained, Jerry Reinsdorf told the New York Times, I don't care if Dave Van Dyke can see the spin of a curveball. <laughs> so I was at least thinking he was line, and I would I would kill to see the spin of a curveball. But I, I sense that no one uh, really is prioritizing that. <laughs> I, I can't. We used to get a kick out of it, though, whenever like the uh, the suite they replaced the press box with was empty. <laughs> and, you know, we could see in and be like, there's no one there. What's going on? But. Man, the old press box was great, James. I'm sure you you, you enjoy hearing us old timers uh, rec- recollect and reminisce about it. I mean, I feel free to quarantine me in it. I, I, I suppose if they want to. Yeah, that'd be fun if they quarantined us in more fun places in the park. Which was, you know, when I'm writing about the story of them not letting people in, be and the the, the point of the story was that anyone who was in St. Louis, um, they wouldn't let in the park, whereas the um, and that was a couple of the writers were there for under 24 hours before uh, the banged Cub Cardinal series and, and two of the writers cover the team. And, you know, the Cubs are putting the, them at a separate table outside the press box, the White Sox. Um, and, and Scott Reifert explains it in detail in my story, you know, and I, I think there's some good points to it. And I think there could have been some compromises. And the point was like, you know, whether or not they they can come in because of that. So. Um, for me, it was an interesting story about media access and just kind of working in a pandemic. Other people will just think it's reporters whining. So <laughs> we like to, I mean, we like to let is everyone it necessary uh, to, though. Well, you know what? Reporters are essential, are essential workers. I mean, that's not like a thing we can, you know, I know people are laughing about it, but like, yeah, because we're you know, beat writers. Well, I mean, we are technically reporters, you know what I mean? You're journalists. And like, I think even though we do different things, you know, I think there is something to, to take seriously with that as a profession. So there's, you know, there's some arguments to be had on both sides, I feel like. But, you know, this year is different than most. You know, some of the arguments kind of ring hollow to a lot of people. And we're all just really trying to, you know, adjust to life, you know, and not just <laughs> not just with our work. But, you know, starting Thursday, I'm going to be basically tethered to my house, you know, for most of the, of the day till my wife gets home because my kids are, you know, doing virtual classroom, virtual school again. And my wife's actually for her teaching job has to go into her classroom. Um, so it's kind of a weird situation, but you know, make the best of it. Yikes. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's what happens when you have kids, James, uh, fun stuff like that. Can't wait. Yep. All right. Well, this is uh, another big week for the White Sox. What's their schedule like coming up? They are facing basically the top prospect list of the Detroit Tigers, who just announced they're calling up Casey Mize and Tariq Skubal for this week. Nice. That's fun. You excited? Yeah. Yeah. I just don't know why. Like, I'm already seeing White Sox. Maybe it's their self-defeating nature to be like oh man why are the tigers doing this this week i can't wait it's like you're really in dread of guys making their big league debuts like big league debuts which this went pretty well on sunday right all right well let's see what happens we'll talk about it in one of our later podcasts and you can revisit uh whether james is being uh, too optimistic there or just right thanks a lot for listening to white Sox business uh we'll see you next time